Um, uh, we're now going to do the Bible reading, um, which is on page 1222 in the Church Bibles. And we're going to be reading the passage 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, who was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You might like to uh, grab the outline in, in the booklet, if that's helpful for you to follow on there. That was an easy passage, wasn't it? There was nothing complex in that at all. Um, but it's a great passage to look at, so uh, let, let's have a look at it together now. Let me pray. And then um, we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can uh, come together uh, in this still relatively new place for us as a church. Uh, But what's not new is your word. And we give you thanks that we can come together and hear it. And Father, we pray today that by your spirit we'll be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen water. Um, Now, do you ever struggle to find the forest through the trees in life? Is that something you struggle with in any aspect of life? Do you know what it means, the the forest through the trees? Yeah? No? Wow, I just assumed we did. I'm interested now. Hands up who doesn't know what it is. It means. 
Well, that's fascinating. You know what it means? It means that you can't see the big forest because you're just focused on a one, the one tree. You're just in the forest. You can just see one tree, but you don't realize you're in this amazing forest. You can't see the bigger picture. That's just a simple way of saying you're too involved in the details of a problem to look at the situation as a whole. Have you ever had that problem in life? I never have. I never get caught up in the details. Jen's looking down. Um, I do it all the time, to be honest. You know, I, there's, there's a few examples. Uh, one, the, the shed at our house that we built and, and converted into our kind of ministry space, our office, our meeting place and everything that's at our house. Uh, those that helped build it, at points, I lost the plot at certain things when I couldn't cope with something not working the way I imagined it in my head and I lost the bigger picture that we had this amazing space that was being built and something not working out the way it was supposed to, some uh, wall being not even or something and I just lose the plot and Jen would have to say, hey, just pull yourself out of it, you goose. Look at this place. It's, it's fantastic space and it's a great blessing to us. There was a time in an exam, this is even worse actually, It's a time in an exam when, uh, it's the worst exam I think I ever did. It's, you know those exams where you get like six or seven questions and you've got to answer the questions correctly? Thank you, Carol. Um, and you've got to answer the question correctly and one question, it was the second question and I just, I couldn't understand it. But the other, the other five I knew perfectly well. But you know what I did? I spent over half the time trying to figure out the answer to that question and then nearly spent 80% of the time answering that one question, which I ended up getting wrong anyway. That was a disastrous fail. Because I didn't see the bigger picture and step out and go, you know what, I'm struggling with that, maybe it'll come to me, but if I answer the other five all right, I'll be okay. I couldn't see the bigger picture. Sometimes, when we come to God's Word and we wrestle with the details, we can be the tree, looking at the trees instead of the forest. We miss the bigger picture. And today's passage, it's, I think it's really important for us, as we may spend some time looking at particular trees, to actually see the bigger picture of what this great passage is about. See, for Christians, it's saying that your life is suffering and doing good, you need to think about. And there's good things to consider. If you're not sure where you are with God, if, you, if you're not sure whether you truly do follow Jesus, well then the bigger picture from this passage amongst some really out there details is that in it, uh, Peter highlights just how we have a relationship with God. And maybe that's what you need to, to see and highlight today. So let's start by getting into the bigger picture. But I'm going to do something that I pretty much don't really ever do. I'm going to finish. I'm going to start by actually giving you the application for today's talk. It's there in the outline. The three points that I want you to see going through all the way through as we look at it is that Peter, who's trying to tell Christians, as you live in a world that's so other, that you don't belong to, you need to remember there is no need to fear. And so hopefully you'll see that play out in the passage. That if you love Jesus and you want to live in his way and not in the world's way, when suffering happens as a Christian, you seek to suffer well, not be trying to avoid it at all costs. 
And thirdly, well, if you want to truly live the way Jesus wants you to, no matter the circumstances, no matter the the possible fear that you could be thinking about, you're ready to answer why you belong to this other world, to God's way. That is what I hope the big picture you will see today in this passage. So, as we look at it, I want you to see that first and foremost, evil is never the option. We do good. Evil is never the option. Have a look with me at verses 8 to 9. If you've got it in front of you, if you don't, feel free to go up and get a Bible. I don't care if you get up and go back, but if not, have a listen. Peter starts off by saying, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you accord so that you may inherit a blessing. What a great list of doing good we have there in verse 8. And in verse 13, it says, those who are eager to do good, and here we have the description earlier, to do good, you're like-minded, sympathetic, you love, you're compassionate, and you're humble. That's a list to consider. Why? Why be those things? Well, if we remember, and maybe if you don't know, Peter's writing to Christians that are all scattered out around Asia Minor and they're scattered in the Roman Empire and what he's realised and what they're facing is persecution for saying they follow Jesus and he's writing a letter to encourage them in all sorts of ways in how to deal with it. And so he wants to encourage them, when you face this, when you face this evil, be a loving person. And so that's why he says in verse 9, When you have evil, don't think, well, they've done evil, so I get to do it now. But if we're being honest, sometimes when we've done wrong, we have that inclination to kind of fight back, to to want our version of justice. Or sometimes if we've been insulted, it's very easy to drop an insult back yourself. And yet, the living in the world of Jesus while in this world, is not to pay evil with evil, but to be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate and humble. That's relevant for Christians today, I think. Probably in our culture in Australia at the moment, it's very relevant on a kind of church, corporate level, society level. We're in different aspects of life. We're being told we're not the loving ones, we're the haters. We need to make sure we're not repaying with evil. But we also need to realise that when schools are being forced to do certain, uh, take certain views, when churches are being challenged um, in regards to all sorts of social issues from marriage to gender, uh, and and the list goes on. We need to remember 
that to live for Jesus is not to throw evil back. How much do you like to get back at people when you've been done wrong? Because verse 9 is upside down, isn't it? It's upside down in a way that you need to be intentional about your life if you love Jesus. You need to think, okay, this has happened. And you, I, right now, you can probably think of something that's happened in your life, recently or in the past. I don't need to come up with an illustration for you. I'm sure you can feel that. And, and you go, well, actually, naturally, I'm just going to respond gracefully. Or, to do it, we need to fight it, don't we? We need to respond. We need to be intentional about it. We need to work at it. And why do we do this? Well, the following verses in verses 10 to 12, which we won't go into in detail, um, is, is uh, Peter's quoting Psalm 32, in which he's highlighting, which he's highlighting that the Lord sees and you follow him. And so you see in those verses that it says, must, three times. They must keep their tongue from evil. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. God wants us desperately to be like that. So go back to that list. Can you say you nail all of those? Can you say that? We all can come before our Lord and ask Him, help me to love better. Not just my family, I can love them. You know, I can love you guys pretty well. I try to. You're all pretty nice. But someone comes and wants to take me out. Someone comes and wants to say, I don't think you should actually get to talk about Jesus. Well, actually, you know what? In other parts of the world, some people are not told they can't talk about Jesus. Their lives are lost. Can you love someone who treats you like that? What does your heart say? God wants us to transform ourselves inwardly in that way. So we want to do good. We want to be humble, compassionate and loving. And as we do that, the next point I think we see in this passage is that there's nothing actually to fear. Have a look at verse 13 and 14 with me. He says, even if you... Uh, sorry, <laughs> I was reading my heading instead of the Bible verse. That was unhelpful. Verse 13 and 14. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear threats. Do not be frightened. See, we don't have to fear, even if you suffer for doing good, because God is bigger. God, who can actually harm you? Um, in Romans, which we've done Romans 8 a little while ago, and Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Which is pretty good. I would like to think... Actually, no, that's not right. I know that Jen has my back more than anyone else. But there's a limit to how much she can have my back in life. The God of the universe, who knows everything about you, 
everything is the one who we should fear in reverence, knowing that he loves us in Jesus. Even if those can harm us physically, even if those can harm us with words, even if those can take away things from us, even if they can take away the ability for us to meet together, which we are so blessed that that's not really an issue at the moment, what have we got to fear? The God of the universe has come into this world and died for us. We are blessed in him. Do you see there how it says blessed? It says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Not, if you suffer for doing what is right, you will be blessed in all these manner of sorts of ways. If you suffer for doing what is right, you know what? Maybe you will have more prosperity now. Or maybe you will actually be healthy later. No, it says you are blessed. The blessing is in living a life that honours your Lord Jesus who suffered for you. As Ephesians says in the beginning of chapter 1, we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. How good is that? Not you might, every Christian has every spiritual blessing. It's brilliant. And so do not fear threats if they come. Do not be frightened. Now on a human level, we will. If someone wants to attack me for being a Christian, it's not going to be comfortable. But when we step out of the tree and see the big forest, I've got nothing to fear. Because Christ is Lord. See that in verse 15? You revere him. Real fear that sees. He's the one who could actually destroy you and he sent Jesus instead. And so we have him as Lord. We have great comfort. No matter what comes our way. It actually means that you and I, when things are not working out right, don't need to be revolutionaries. It's not really a Christian mandate to be overthrowers of governments if the governments aren't working out the way we want. Because God's kind of sovereign and that government's in power and it's not like God's going, oh gee, how did that happen? He's sovereign over all governments, even the evil ones. And it also means we're not to be like, hiding in the basement, not speaking what we think God wants us to say about his son or relating to each other. Both poles are contradictory to a God who is Lord, to a Christ who has suffered. Instead, we see what Jesus has done and we're prepared to answer. Can you see that there? In verse 15, that goes on in the second part. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Three words I want you to reflect on in that passage. Always be prepared and hope. He says, you're always not, it'd be a good idea if you get to it sometime or if you could have a go in, say, the next 10 years. Make a 10-year life goal plan. 
to get to the point where you can say something about God. He says, always, you just, it's just what you do, and you're prepared. That is, it's not, uh, oh, um, uh, yeah, mm, mm, uh, God's good, thanks. And you've never given it any thought before. <laughs> Have you ever been stuck in a conversation and you've had no words? Yeah? Man, I feel like it's every second day for me. <laughs> but that's, that's not the, the, what, what um, is just going on here. It's to say we love Jesus so much that we want to be able to share our life with him. That we can talk about it. Not just talk about it, but reflect it, show it. But what is it? It's the hope. You know, I mentioned in the summer series that we're having in January that I said that there's a world without hope. Are you prepared to tell this world that there is eternal hope? Not that you know it's true, but are you prepared for others to want to hear it? But there's a preface. You, you don't get to be a bulldozer. You don't get just to steamroll across and just tell everyone what you think, how you think. He says, with gentleness and respect. Do you see that there? Do it with gentleness and respect at the uh, end of verse 15 and with a clear conscience. Um, one of the most memorable moments of this happening for me, you know the show Q&A? It's a show that drives me crazy. I can't even watch it anymore, but that's just my issues. Um, but quite a few years ago, um, the Archbishop of Sydney um, was on it, Peter Jensen. He's not the Archbishop now. Um, and whether what he said was right or wrong, um, which I think it was really helpful, it was what, how he went about it on this one day that I thought was just spectacular and it was no doubt he was trying to live out these words. I can't even exactly remember what the topic was, but the panel was basically everyone else versus him on, in regards to views. And there was a, the lady purpose, purposely sitting next to him who spent the whole time attacking him for why he said what he, what he said and saying, well, the Bible doesn't say this and the Bible doesn't say that. What he did, that whole um, show, was not once attack her, not once seek to tear her to shreds, always let her speak, and then at certain points would say, I don't think that's actually fair because the Bible actually says this. And then what happened for most of that episode that I remember watching was, he was kind of taken down and he never ever tried to not be taken down he kind of purposely lost the argument in a way but he said what he thought jesus said and what the bible said and he did it with gentleness and respect we don't need to win arguments we need to love and be prepared to answer Now, can you do those things? It doesn't matter if you can't. It's, this is not supposed to be a guilt trip kind of talk. It's more a matter of, you know what? 
I would like to be able to do it a bit better. I would like to actually think more about what I love. That would be a good thing for me, never mind other people who need eternal life. Maybe I should think about my story. Maybe I should want to understand God's word better so I can share it. Do I understand the hope? What I love for our church is that we all are wanting to grow more and more in owning that. The guilt of how good someone can do it to me is completely ridiculous and and kind of stupid and we don't need to go there. But what we all should want to do is think, how can I know Jesus better and share it? To make this point, let me share with you this week one of my most epic fails. (laughs) Okay? Um, uh, We've we've, uh, had to... We didn't have to, but we chose to get, um, we found floorboards underneath what was on top of them in our house. And so we decided to get the floorboards all beautifully polished. And that's great. The tradie who's come and do, uh, has done it for us, he is a top bloke. He's fantastic. He's a really great guy. The most reliable tradie I've ever had, except for any tradies that are here. Um, most reliable tradie that I've ever had, right? He's brilliant. He's a really great guy. I um, really recommend him. He's excellent. And I, and I said, I said that. I said, oh, he's a really great guy. And, and someone just said to me, does he know Jesus? And it wasn't an attack at me at all. It was just a, com- a really, really great comment because the next day I thought, you know what? I was never prepared. I wasn't thinking always. And I have the hope. And there was, I didn't even cross my mind to share. And I had so many conversations with him. Now, it's not the end of the world. God's sovereign. But just in reflections, it made me think, there's so many times in my life where people who are far away from God, I haven't even thought about. Maybe we need more time in the Word, more time in prayer, and more time together doing those things. There's nothing to fear. Because we remember Christ's suffering. Verses 19 to 22, the last section. Now, there's the forest first, the clear bit, and then I'll spend a little moment on the really complex bit, all right? This is 19 to 22. I did skip the Isaiah passage, um, that's okay. Verse 19. After, oh, sorry, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. There cannot be anyone more righteous than him. There cannot be anyone who has suffered more unjustly in all of human history than him. This is the really big forest, right? Jesus... The perfect one. The God who's become flesh suffered death on a cross. But what's clear about this passage is not that maybe we just know that that happened, the clarity on why. See how it says the righteous for the unrighteous? And it's done once. He's saying Jesus died on the cross. Jesus 
for you. Righteous Jesus for the unrighteous you. And it happened once. So that you can become righteous with him. That is what's happening at the cross. That is what Christmas, that is what the Jesse tree, that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. Our problem, we, we, those kids really highlighted how bad rulers we are, right? And we might think, oh, they're saying the same thing over and over again. But that's kind of because that's our human nature, to want to take everything for ourselves. And God has come and done the opposite and said, I'm going to give myself for everyone. What it achieves is life for him forever. Life with him forever. Was Jesus ready to give an answer? On the cross, before his death, he said to his Father, forgive them. This is the model of love and compassion that we started with. Do you need to take that first and foremost? That's what we want to constantly share, what we constantly live by, and what you need first and foremost, the whole doing good without that is a waste of your time. Embrace it. But then, as we get close to the end, but then we see that Peter's argument takes a kind of strange twist. Let me, let me just read the words to you so you can be as confused as I am. He then goes on to say, after Jesus was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, if you want to hang with me and try and figure this out, do it. If, if, if you can't, make sure you get that Jesus suffered for us so we have life with him and you want to do good. But... I think there's a reason why uh, this is here, um, and I tentatively, tentatively want to share one idea with you. The reality is, I think this is the hardest passage verses in all of the New Testament. And many, many great people, many great godly minds who have written heaps on this have different opinions. It's okay, it's not like um, anything hangs on it. It's not like if we don't get this, did Jesus die or not die, did he rise or not die, rise. And it's more than likely that the first century readers, the actual readers Peter was writing to, kind of would understand it straight away. Ah, oh, yeah, the whole Noah thing. Yeah, yeah, I get it. For us, it's a bit trickier. Here's three ideas. The three common ideas that people say. After Jesus' death, before his resurrection, he went, he went down to hell and he preached uh, to the, uh, the spirit of sinners um, from the flood in Moses' time from the flood to Moses' time, rather, sorry. What he said, well, who knows? Some say it was a second chance. I would say that's ridiculous because the Bible clearly says there's no second chances. But others say, well, maybe Jesus went there to preach to his triumphant victory. Like, you know, when you win something, you declare, it, it happened. I told it, it happened. It's kind of, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel comfortable for me and why this group... And it, it, that one it doesn't sit with me, but as Don Carson said when he was sharing these views, he said, if you have a different view than me, God bless you and go in peace. It's like one of these passages, right? The second one, the one that I feel I'm most comfortable with, is that Christ, through his spiritual realm, 
in his spiritualness, if you like, before he came and was made flesh, he was spirit in that realm, and that's when it's saying spirit, that realm, he preached to people alive in Noah's day that were wicked. Potentially, I think what it seems to be most likely, through Noah, by the spirit of Noah himself, by his spirit and Noah himself, he preached. So that is to say, what the passage is saying is that back then, through Noah, preached to those wicked generation and now they are in prison for eternity. Then there's a third argument about Jesus preaching to fallen angels, which I, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to leave aside. Can you see how whack and crazy it is? <laughs> it's, it's out there, right, for us? But I, I think that works in the argument of what's going on. Let me show you why. You see, this whole idea of Jesus um, being in the spiritual, and when he was resurrected, he was fully bodily resurrected, but spiritual. Of that, of that realm, when he was resurrected in his resurrected body. And when he was resurrected, um, he was, it was eternal. It was forever. And so this idea of spiritual Jesus going back, uh, back then preaching is not um, ridiculous. And actually, it does say in 1 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And the Bible does talk about through the Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ motivated them. So that's possible. And what we see with Noah, why did he do this? Why did he bring this up now? Well, possibly because in a wicked generation like Noah, the Christ Spirit was being proclaimed. The call to repent, which, which Noah did. And now, what's needed in this wicked generation? Well, people to repent and come back. There's lots of parallels. Noah was a minority in a hostile culture. That's what Peter's saying to these um, exiles. Righteousness amongst the wicked generation. They were both witnesses until judgment. And Christ was speaking, uh, preaching through prophets seems to be reasonable. So anyway, I know some of you love to get into those details and think that's true. That's my best crack at it. Um, you can tailor that, that pass you by. Just don't let Jesus suffering for, for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, to pass you by. And then lastly, as he's talking about Noah and water, he goes on to baptism. I think this is much clearer to understand. When he talks about baptism, he says in 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. What it's saying is not baptism saves you, but it's the pledge of a good conscience. And our problem today is baptism isn't perfectly, isn't so integrally lined up with being converted. For first century Christians, it was. So to say the part was to say the whole. It's not to say that's what saved you, it's to say Jesus saved you that way, through the resurrection. It's a little bit like, I think this is true. I know there's a couple of farmers out there, if I'm wrong, just go with it because it works for the illustration. So if you ask a farmer how many cattle do they have, they would say, oh, I've got a thousand head. 
That's because each... Now, that doesn't mean that they've only got a thousand heads of cattle and they don't have the body and legs. Right? And they don't say, I've got a thousand legs because then you've got divided by four and it gets all confusing, right? That one comment identifies the whole. It's saying baptism, a pledge of a good conscience, is so integrally related to conversion that when you're saying, uh, if you ask the first century Christian, when were you converted? They'd say, oh, I was baptized when? It's to say, not that my baptism saved me, that's when I actually believed that Jesus was Lord and I trusted in him. You see? And baptism, the water, symbolizes a cleansing, new life, a pledge of a good conscience towards God. And so what we have, there's nothing to fear because one, Jesus has suffered for you. Two, he, he, he continues preaching throughout all the generations. And three, a pledge of a good conscience towards God means you have been saved by his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is still alive. That's what we need to remember. Our eternal reality. Is it yours? And when you fear, challenge it. That's probably the biggest thing I need to take away from, for myself today. And so secondly, we suffer well instead of seeking to avoid it. We suffer with our Lord. We're prepared. If we actually, I don't see this happening, but imagine if we did the summer series, we invited lots of people, we asked people, and there was a massive revolt in Golden Grove, and everyone said, wow, this church needs to be shut down because they're telling us that there's no hope except for Jesus. Now, if, if that was a real possibility, should we be fearful? No. It's not actually a possibility, but imagine if it was. But there's nothing to fear, because Jesus is still Lord. And we're ready to answer why you belong to another world. Because there is hope. Amen.